the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Praise to the God who reigns above. God has been addressing the nation of Israel before they enter to conquer the Promised Land. God speaking through Moses reminded the people that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. They were to not forget God's civil and ceremonial laws when dwelling in the land. In chapter 23, we saw how Israel was to deal with their neighbors. They were to extend peace and love completely different than the people around them. Now, we will see how the nation of Israel was to love those closest to them, namely, to love their own spouse as God loved his people. This would be countercultural back in that time period. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Coming to the end of the, this first major discourse of Moses in Deuteronomy, that will end with chapter 26. He's finishing up teaching them the way that they as a nation would love God supremely. That's the whole theme of the book of Deuteronomy, loving God supremely. And he's calling them to that in light of the great love that God has had for them. And so he's going over the laws and how they apply into the promised land because as Jesus said, if you love me, he said, you'll keep my commandments. Now last week in 23, we looked at the laws that Moses gave to govern how Israel would interact with their neighbors from afar, whether they were foreigners or countrymen, but how they would handle relationships with people who weren't close to you. And this week, we're gonna look at laws that apply to those who are close to you. I don't know about you, but sometimes it can be hardest to love those who are closest to us. We have higher expectations. We don't take it as personally when from someone who's far away. And what this can result in is that we pull away from investing into close relationships and God doesn't want Israel to do that. He didn't want Israel to do that. He doesn't want us to do that. In order to help with this, for us, I found an article by a home builder association entitled Seven Ways to Be a Good Neighbor. So this is how you figure it out. You don't even need your Bible for this. Number one, put yourself out there. Make the first move to introduce yourself. Number two, remember your neighbor's names. I have no clue what my neighbor's names are. Take responsibility for your pets. I saw a kid walking his dog down the road yesterday and the dog was doing his business in everybody's yard. Don't do that. Keep up with the yard work. Be considerate of noise levels. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) I knew I would get at least one. Give your neighbors their space. Number seven, communication. Great advice. However, while this may be helpful, I think Moses has some principles for us that will help us even more. So chapter 24, and we're going to start by looking at the person who's closest to us, and in this case, your spouse in particular, 
And that day, a man towards his wife. And so in verse 21 of chapter 24, it says, Now when a man has taken a wife and married her, and if it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. When she has departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and give it into her hand and send her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her back to be his wife after that she is defiled. For that is abomination before the Lord, and you shall not cause the land to sin, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. So here we see that he deals with, he's going to talk about newlyweds after that verse, but here he addresses in loving the person close to you regarding the lasting commitment that is your marriage, the lasting commitment that is to be to your wife. He starts off by showing the commitment made. He says, now when a man has taken a wife, and the idea there again, it's not he go grabs a woman and says, she my wife. That's not what he's talking about here. The word here, taken, it means to obtain or to receive. And in other words, he's made a formal contract with her family. All marriages were arranged back then. And so he says, when he has made this contract and he has entered into this agreement to have a wife, and then he finally marries her when he follows through with the contract, when they become one flesh through their vows, Genesis 2, 24, 25, it says there that for this cause, what cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and the two shall be one flesh? What's the cause? Well, right before that, God brought Eve to Adam and Adam didn't go, no, I was hoping for a blonde. No, I I mean, she looks kind of ornery. No, he didn't say any of those things. He said, no, 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 I accept this. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He accepted her, and so there was a promise made that he would be committed to her for the rest of his life. She accepted it too because she went through with it. The idea there is that on the basis of those promises, those vows, that God takes him and he does something supernatural, he makes two people one. And so now this is the couple's status. They've made this commitment to each other. Now, if that happens, what happens when you have a problem with that commitment? Well, verse 1, it goes on to say, and it shall come to pass that if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then here's what you do. Here we see that the commitment is tested. They're entered into it, but now it's tested. The word there for no favor, the phrase no favor, it means if she's no longer pleasing, if he no longer sees her as a good thing, if she is no longer in favor with him. In other words, he does not want to be married to her anymore. This doesn't apply to the woman because she couldn't initiate the divorce back then. That's just how the culture worked. Not saying it's right, it's just how it was. So that's why she's not addressed. If he doesn't want to be married to her anymore, can't be for any reason. It has to fulfill this reason. It says, because he has found some uncleanness in her. Now, the word there, found some, means he discovers an event has occurred. He's discovered that something has happened, and it is this uncleanness. This uncleanness, it actually has three possible meanings to it. This uncleanness could describe an act that is just morally repugnant, like theft or uh, you know something along those lines. The second way it could be defined is it's just something that's dishonorable, shameful, or indecent. This is the way the word was used in chapter 23, verse 14, when it described doing your business and leaving it uncovered, and therefore God would see your uncleanness. That's the idea there, is it's something that would be dishonorable, shameful, or indecent. So if he discovered that something like that had happened, that might be the definition. The third possible definition would be any type of sexually immoral behavior. Usually you would see that 
If it's in context, it means that it would be translated nakedness. Remember like when Ham saw Noah's nakedness, Noah got drunk and Ham thought it was hilarious and he went and told everybody, granddad's naked, you know. Ah. Of course, the, the other boys went in, uh, not uh, granddad, dad's naked. The other boys went in and, and they covered him up politely. They went in backwards. They didn't want to treat that that way. The word could refer to that. It could refer to sexual immorality. So which one is this referring to here? Well, we know we can eliminate number three. It can't be sexual sin because what happened when you committed sexual sin in the Old Testament? It was a capital crime. If it was adultery or you found out she wasn't a virgin, you know, or prostitution, something along those lines, those were capital crimes. So divorce, you didn't have to go through that process. You just got rid of her. That could not be the definition here. So that means it's either something morally awful like theft or slander or, you know, or some other non-capital crimes or something that brought dishonor, shame, or indecency to her husband. So which of those two is it? Well, in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought. There were two very famous rabbis, Rabbi Hillel, and uh, he was a little bit more liberal in his viewpoints of the scripture. And he taught that uh, what the Pharisees suggested in Matthew 19, verse 3, they came to Jesus and they said, can a man divorce his wife for every cause? That was the Hillel perspective, for every cause. So he had a very broad perspective that all of those things could apply. He focused on the no favor portion. Basically, if anything he doesn't like and he wants out of the marriage, then that was uncleanness. And he even suggested it could be as simple as burning a meal. And, you know, if she burns your dinner, you can divorce her. That's uncleanness. It's brought shame to you because God forbid your palate be displeased. Rabbi Shammai was a little bit more restrictive. Uh, He taught that it was only the most heinous of these actions that could justify a divorce. Something that landed your wife in prison. Something that completely dishonored you and dragged your name through the mud. Now, because of this confusion between these two viewpoints, and obviously they're very different viewpoints, divorce was a hot topic for debate in Jesus' day. So which one did Moses mean? Was he with Hillel or Shammai? Well, Jesus' answer gives us some clarity. So let's look at Matthew 19. Verse 4, in response to their question, is it lawful for man to put away his wife for every cause? They were taking that Hillel viewpoint, the very liberal viewpoint. Jesus agree with him or with Shammai? Well, Jesus answered and said to them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Have you not read that? I mean, you want to go to Moses, but let's go all the way back to Genesis is what Jesus says. Wherefore, in light of what God said, not Moses, but what God said back in Genesis, wherefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Now they follow that up with another question. Well, then why did Moses give a command, which Moses didn't? Why did Moses give a permission to give a writing of divorcement, a bill of divorcement, and then to put her away? And here Jesus gives the answer. He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness, the stubbornness, the unyieldedness of your hearts, he permitted you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So what's our answer? Well, whatever uncleanness means, the truth is, I don't think any of us can really know for sure. Whatever it means, the idea here is that the idea of uncleanness did not originate from God or his thoughts on marriage. Whatever uncleanness is, it is defined by man's idea of what ruins a marriage, not on God's thoughts on marriage. 
which means that neither dishonoring your husband or committing something morally repugnant, some horrible crime, is a legitimate reason to divorce from God's perspective. That that's not God's plan. That that's not God's desire. Now, where did Israel get that perspective then? Well, they got it in Egypt. There's literally no mention of divorce in the Scripture until Israel was in Egypt. Never. You won't see it brought up at all. All Bible scholars, you read every single one, they all agree that Israel learned many wicked practices from their 400 years in Egypt. And one of those was the concept of divorce. Now, these practices, we've covered this already. We talked about it with the revenge killing earlier with the cities of refuge in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. These practices were things that God was not okay with, but they were so deeply ingrained in Israel's culture that God knew they would not listen to him if he forbade them. Remember, they did not have the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the flesh. And so God, instead of just eliminating it, he put strict bounties around those practices. Now, When we read things like Deuteronomy 24, those verses must be understood in light of that idea that God put boundaries around things that he didn't approve of. These verses must be understood in light of that rather than consulted to understand the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage. If we want the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage, you need to go to Matthew 19, 9, where he says this, and I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, that is not the same thing as uncleanness, completely different. He says, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whosoever marries her which is put away does commit adultery. That is where we get the clear teaching of Scripture on the topic of divorce and remarriage. If you fail to do that, you're going to come up with the wrong answer. If you try to go to Deuteronomy 24 and go, well, this is how we understand divorce and remarriage, you're going to be wrong. That is not how we understand it. We go to Matthew, Mark 10, Luke, I believe it's 16 is the other passage. We go to 1 Corinthians 7, and they all support the statement that I just read to you that Jesus said in Matthew 19. I imagine if you've read any books on divorce and remarriage, you're gonna, or marriage and divorce, you're going to find ten, 10 books, you'll find 10 different explanations. And since the arguments I find when I read these books are so similar to the ones made by the rabbis in Jesus' day, it almost seems like they try to make either Jesus agree with Hillel or Shammai when he doesn't agree with either of them. He goes back to the beginning in the garden. And when I read those arguments, it makes me wonder if we've also hardened our hearts on this topic to the simple teaching of the Bible on marriage. That God's design for marriage is one man, one woman for life. Now, you might be saying, wait a second, Pastor Will. I read through that. It doesn't sound like very much of a boundary. This sounds like the dude can kind of just got carte blanche. You know, he can do whatever he wants to get rid of his wife. You know, if, you know uncleanness, even that just seems kind of light. This looks like permission to do what they've already been doing. Well, let's keep reading. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 24, and let's look at the end of verse 1. He says, if these conditions are met, and if he wants out of the marriage, he says this is what he must do. Here's the boundary for divorce. He sets a boundary for remarriage as well. Here's the boundary for divorce, though. He says, then let him, the husband, write her, his wife, a bill or a certificate of divorcement and give it into her hand and send her out of his house. Now, the word there, bill, means an official record that serves as proof of an agreement or a transaction. You have to understand something. You think, well, what's what's the big deal there? You just go down to the courthouse, you get it done, and it's over, right? No, 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 no. Back then, they didn't just have pen and paper at beck and call, okay? This was not an easy thing to do. The idea here is, back then, if you you were in Egypt, you you could just kick your wife out, and she's done. That's it. There are some in the Middle East today in Arab communities where they just say, all you have to do is say, I divorced you three times, and it's it's official. 
This guy couldn't do that. God goes, "Uh uh-uh. You need to make this official. You need to take the time to go get this done, to go get the paperwork done and make sure everything's on the up and up. And that, of course, would mean he would have time to cool down, time to rethink his decision, time for reconciliation. So often I find that marriages go into a downward spiral because all we can see right now is the horribleness of the here and now. Like, I don't like how this situation is. I don't like how they treat me. I don't like how we're interacting. All we see is the repeated pain they've caused us and encapsulated in that current current problem that we're facing. And we act upon those thoughts, those emotions, we only create a further divide. Imagine this. Imagine if we weren't allowed to speak to our spouse in that moment when they hurt us or when they fail us. But we were forced by God to talk to him about it for a few days first. I imagine our perspective would change, don't you? I know mine does. I'll be all mad at Bev about something. You know how you do? You, make your, you already have your argument with the person even though they're not there. You conjure up an imaginative spouse and an imaginative situation and an imaginative argument and you just get them, right? You anticipate all their arguments and you got all the arguments right back for them. And by the time, by the time I've gone through all that and the Lord's like, you finished? You, fi- you finished pulling your bride out of a, a cage to beat her up for a little bit? How about you? Think I rack to you that way when you fail me? So often in those moments, my attitude can immediately change. More than likely, if we took that time before we had the conversation, the difficult conversation with our spouse, we'd do a better job at resolving the conflict in a way that heals the relationship rather than doing further harm. So you see this here. This was a boundary. And, and this first boundary was designed to protect women from poverty and homelessness. If you were, you were in the situation that it was before Moses said this, you could be out on the street like that. And mom and dad would not be able to take you back in because you've dishonored the family name. So you would be homeless. You would be impoverished. Very likely, the only choice was to become a prostitute. And so the Lord put the boundary there to protect these women. He also put the boundary here to cause men to invest in their marriages instead of seeking to abandon them. And that really is the principle I think we get out of this here. And so I ask you tonight, if you're married, do you invest in your marriage? Or do you immediately write your spouse off as stupid or childish or unredeemable when they fail you? I love what Elizabeth Elliot said. She said, marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. You need to understand that's an impossibility, right? (laughs) How do you make an unconditional commitment to someone that you know will fail you? I mean, none of us enter into contracts like that. If you go to buy a car and and the company tells you, oh, by the way, when you bring your car in for the checkup, we have it written here. There's no extra charges, but really, we're going to take you for about 800 bucks. Would you sign it? Not likely. You might barter. You might bargain a little bit more, right? You would want to make it fair. You'd want to make it just. None of us would enter into an unconditional commitment to someone we know is going to fail. And yet, you've all done it if you're married. And people do it all the time. That's the promise we make. That's why in the wedding vows, we say things like for richer or poorer, for sickness or health, for better or worse. Because it is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. So let's make sure we're investing into those who are the most closest to us, our spouses. Now, when she would get the certificate, it would lay out the reasons for the divorce and it would allow the woman to return to her parents' home to be cared for until, and again, I'm not saying this is right, but the idea was until a new husband would care for her because that was the only way a woman would be cared for in that day. She couldn't just go out and get a job. She couldn't provide for herself. 
And the document would show that she wasn't unfaithful. You know, she just wasn't pleasing to him. And therefore, she could retain her honor. Her family could take her back in. And another man would honorably be able to marry her. Now, that's not the only limit, a boundary that God set. He sets a boundary regarding divorce, but then he sets a boundary regarding remarriage. He limits socially acceptable attempts at polygamy. Look at verse 2. He says, now when she is departed out of his house, her husband's house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, in other words, he comes into a similar boat where he doesn't want the relationship anymore, and he writes her a bill of divorcement, and he gives it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house, or if he dies, that second husband dies, which took her to be his wife, her first husband, which sent her away, well, he can't take her back again to be his wife. After that she, pardon me, she is defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not cause the land to sin, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. Now, this is interesting. So if she gets divorced, she remarries another guy, he dies or he divorces her, she can't go back to her first husband. Why? Well, explains because she's already been defiled. What does that mean? This is the only time this form of this verb occurs in the Bible. And it refers to the defilement that's associated with someone who commits adultery. In other words, by divorcing her and causing her to go find someone else to take care of her and marry her, you have caused her to commit adultery when you did that. Sound familiar? It's just like what Jesus said, right? He said, whosoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that's divorced commits adultery as well. Same thing that God says here. I do find it interesting that God calls a person who is legally married by society an adulteress. Just because our government or any government or anybody says something is a marriage or something makes people married, just because you got a slip of paper doesn't mean it's okay with the Lord. Marriage is something defined by God and no one else. God does permit it because of their hard hearts, but he says no way to the idea of returning to your first husband. He says that is an abomination in the eyes of God. That act of the first husband taking her back, why? Well, this idea of a woman being passed back and forth between men was repulsive to the Lord. Sex is reserved for married couples who have become one flesh by their vows and is to be enjoyed by those two people alone for as long as they're both alive. Listen, multiple marriage situations may be perfectly fine and acceptable in our culture, but to God, it is just polygamy with nice clothes on. That's what the Bible teaches. This is why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 19, 9. You know, divorce and remarriage, except for the one exception that Jesus gives, there is adultery, even if society accepts it. Now, I remember I was at a, I don't know if I was at a conference or something, and I, I heard a pastor describe monogamy as one wife at a time. Well, I am not a, uh, and pardon my language here, I'm not a Beavis and Butthead fan, and I don't ever watch the show. For whatever reason, at some point in time, I saw a clip where they were laughing and going, I believe in monogamy, one wife at a time. Ha, ha, ha. I went up to the gentleman afterwards, and when I told him that he defined monogamy the same way Beavis and Butthead did, he didn't know how to answer. <laughs> I'm here tonight to tell you with full biblical authority that one wife at a time is not a biblical definition of monogamy. When Jesus reestablished biblical marriage in Matthew 19, he clearly stated it was one man and woman for life. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. They might say, wait a second, Pastor, what about that exception of fornication in Matthew 19, 9? Listen, who 
or what qualifies for that topic is way too big for this evening because we have many verses to go through and I'm nowhere near getting through them. So we will cover that when we do the book of Matthew. If, or you can listen to my teachings on 1 Corinthians 7 where we go through divorce and remarriage there. So you can get the CDs and we do talk about it there. But the key principle I think that Moses is trying to communicate through this is, men, you need to love your spouses, not give up on them, right? That's the idea. Women, you need to love your husbands, not give up on them. Marriage was supposed to be a clear picture of God's love for his people, his bride, the Church of Christ. With Christ as our example, men were supposed to love their bride, giving himself for her, washing her in the word of God. As the church being our example, women are to submit to their husbands, like the church submits to Christ. But we must remember, your spouse is not perfect. Marriage is an unconditional relationship and bond to an imperfect person, and this is where faith comes in. Don't give up on marriage. Fight for it. Invest in it. God can restore and heal anything. He can bring resurrection life to things that are dead. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.